0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and
1: Adam Pawlik.
2: Hey, this is Adam from the CRE Podcast. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a while ago. So it's a little bit dated. It's one of the conferences in 2023. It was released in video format at the time for anybody that wanted to watch Aaron and I speak in person. But this, of course, will be the, the podcast platform. So we are going to release all the content now. It is good stuff. Some of the references might not jibe contextually with the current market. Keep that in mind when you're listening to it. And I guess the other big takeaway message is for 2024, we've invested into a podcast producer. And you're going to see episodes that are released very shortly after recording. And you'll probably see a little more social media going on. So look forward to it. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am Adam Pawadik, sitting here with Aaron Cameron at the 2023 Apartment Conference. You may or may not be able to hear the noise in the background. It's mid-morning. We're just getting going. Uh, I want to thank, of course, Kingset Capital for sponsoring the video portion of this event. I want to welcome back a uh, three-time guest now, Jamie McKenna who's got a a long title that, to make sure I get it right here, Managing Director and Group Head of Real Estate, Fengate Asset Management. Welcome back.
0: Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here.
2: So first time Jamie was on,
1: she was at Minto.
0: That's right. Second time Jamie was- COVID
1: during uh, video only. uh, We didn't see her in person. And then the second time you were on, you were a couple weeks into Fengate. Uh,
0: Yes. You guys questioned me three weeks into my job. That's right.
1: Yeah. And you basically said, I don't know, I'll find out. And so hopefully now you've got more answers for us. So let's just start there. How has the last couple of years been at Fengate?
0: Uh, I mean, it's been amazing. And of course, I'm going to say that, but I really, I mean, I'll say first and foremost, the culture at Fengate has been just unbelievable. Since you started? Uh, Since, of course, it was 100% me. It was definitely not the 40 years of history. No, it I mean, they, they have an unbelievable culture, and everybody kind of says that, but...
1: culture is hard to define.
0: It's hard to define, and it really is a feeling, but I mean, the symbol to me was when we were going through COVID and coming back to the office, we never mandated people to come back to the office, but they did anyway, and they legitimately enjoy their time together. So, we actually are running out of space, and I still haven't mandated more than two days in the office. So, culture for sure... And then we've been on an unbelievable growth trajectory. Like we're supported by our client Layuna, the pension plan. And they're very bullish on real estate. They see that connection between the laborers, the union, as well as real estate driving employment. And so consistently have supported us with every single year. And we've actually tripled the platform in the last four years.
2: So you We're living in Ottawa. Yes. But it was COVID, so it really didn't matter where you were located. Is the return to office what precipitated your move to Toronto?
0: Great question. So I am an extrovert and I was dying working from home. So I came back to Toronto pretty early. So I actually did the commute for probably two more years. And it was about a year ago of flight delays. I had just been fed up. I came home to my family. I said, I'm there four days a week. Literally four days a week. I don't even need to necessarily be there four days a week. And we made the decision. But you wanted to. I wanted to. And I actually really enjoy my team. I love my job. Um, And our business is all in Ontario, or in Toronto, largely. And uh, so we made the decision and we we bought. And it takes a while. And we moved in July 1st. My son started his new school last week. He's away at camp this week. And mommy's missing him. Of course. And my husband's just along for the ride.
1: So coming to the apartment conference, a different experience this year than others. Yes. Jump on Avenue Road and boot down or take the subway.
0: I may have gotten dropped off at this morning because I was wearing high heels and I didn't want to walk the block to the subway, (laughs) (laughs) but normally I promote transit because it's good for the environment.
2: So let's talk about Fengy. I mean, we're here at the, the apartment conference It's obviously not the only asset class you're in, but maybe, maybe we can start with that one. And what are you looking to do with the book, buying, selling? What's the, uh, what's the internal conversation?
0: Well, one of the things we've built up over the last four or five years has been a big pipeline of residential. So we have 15,000 residential units in our pipeline. We're hoping at least a third of those will become apartments. So that pipeline, if we don't invest another dollar, will take us for the next 10 years. So we actually launched an open-ended multifamily apartment fund last year. We seeded it with three assets. And then that will become the vehicle that we'll be able to sell the completed developments into. So we're planning to hold on and grow that vehicle. In the next five years, it'll be probably about 2,500 units. We like new build. We're not buying IPP. We're not looking to do turnovers. We're really looking to buy low capital intensive new build that cash flows for us. What our experience has been, though, looking at the 15,000 units, A lot of the sites aren't defined yet. We know how much we can build, but not necessarily what we build. And we're pivoting some condo projects to rental, which is probably the first time in my career I've ever said that. Why? Well, anything that's relatively recent or is going to go into the ground soon, it lets us skip over pre-sales. So right now, nobody wants to be selling. We don't know that we're going to want to be selling in the next 18 months. So if we can skip over that period of time and lease up is in two years from now, you know, we can see the rental growth. We see all the fundamentals. We're hoping rates peter off at least, if not come down. It just gets us over this period of time, but still lets us continue to work and push dirt and build our projects.
2: The 15,000 units, are those all going to be built? Yes. Okay, that's, that's a robust pipeline then, yes. It's a very
0: <laughs> robust pipeline. We keep trying to figure out where we rank in terms of pipeline. You know, we're all competitive in this industry, but it's definitely grown.
1: To make that math work, the apartments because we you know we we're at the apartment conference talking to a lot of developers and apartment owners and it's challenging right now to figure out if it even makes sense to put shovel in the ground even on apartments but, uh, save and accept you know the, the benefit of not having to to go to to sales do you have to take a ten fifteen year IRR calculation like what's that math look like to kind of talk yourself into okay this makes sense even though today it may not spec out
0: you do have to take a long term view it's not fifteen years but. We kind of look at it at that three-year development period, then we look at it on a 10-year basis because we want to make sure there's an initial development transaction and then there's sort of the seven to 10-year of income transaction. But we're conservative. We buy our land well. Uh, You know, we maximize the, the density that we can get on it. So we average down our land costs. We're conservative with cap rates. But I think for us, what makes it work is we're really bullish on rental rates. And we look at rental rates a little bit differently. Like, of course, you look at cap and you look at the price per square foot and you look at your competitors, but we're looking at affordability more and more. So we look at the node that we're going to build in and we assess what's the average income in the node and then what is sort of 30 to 40% of that income and then what does that translate into rents? And you typically get a higher number than you expect.
2: Let's go to affordability over here. Yeah, we might as well. If you're bullish on rents, it
1: means you're probably not bullish on affordability, right? Is that the counterpoint? (laughs) I'll, let me say this because I found this really interesting. Mark Kenny was on here yesterday, and for listeners, you hopefully have heard it now. Depending on, on rollout, if you haven't heard it yet, go and find the Mark Kenny episode, or it's coming soon. And he was talking about, you know, he was having he was challenged with the d- definition of affordability because he said, you know, my most affordable building is my most expensive because the average income in that building is the highest, and therefore the proportion of rents is actually the lowest, so it's the most affordable. You know, not wrong. It's a bit of a stretch, but how do you kind of define affordability when you're talking about it within your team?
0: I think we use affordability too broadly. So what I've started to say, there's there's social housing. So we know that we have half the social housing that we need in the country right now at any point in time. So that to me is an infrastructure, government-funded, different model. And then I kind of break it out between affordability and obtainability. And what I talk about when I say, if I look at the average income and 30 to 40 percent of their income can go to rents, then that's obtainable. right? So that's just people can afford to rent in the building. Affordable needs to be a whole different kettle of fish. Is There's a lot of things that have to be considered. We've got to look at, you know, are we building efficiently? What kind of tax incentives are we getting? We need uh, certainty around financing, finance costing, duration of financing. And then are the government-funded programs for the individuals going to the right place? Like all the, There's literally 10 factors that you could look at to drive an affordability initiative. But to me, if you're talking about affordability, you're sort of 20 to 30 percent below average rents. But you can only get there with a, pulling a bunch of different levers. And we're, we're talking HST is the hot topic. Is the federal government going to go, give relief to developers on HST assessments?
2: Aaron asked a question yesterday, but I'll, I'll repeat it. If you did remove HST from your budget, how much of a game changer is it for viability of a project?
0: So it's significant. A few of us have run numbers. It could be over 100 basis points on the IRR. So it's material. But then the question is, are they going to do it as a deferral versus permanent elimination of HST? As a deferral, it's hard for a group like us because we're moving between funds, our investor base changes. Hard for
1: a group like you. Us as lenders, we'll just include it in the budget. If it's a deferral, it's just, it's not actually gone. You pay it later, but I still have to include it in the budget and therefore your your financing's not changed. And it ranks ahead of our mortgages. So it's a risk we've got to manage. So they, yeah, it really so it actually makes no difference if it's deferred.
0: Exactly. Exactly. And the only the only people it makes a difference for are gonna be, you know, private investors that are gonna hold it for thirty years, that aren't as reliant on on maybe leverage, but permanent reduction or elimination of the tax is meaningful.
1: Even if it's temporary elimination. Like we're just not gonna if you build in the next five years, you don't owe it. Right. Like that's fine. So then I just know I've got this start and end date from a lending perspective of what to include in the budget and what not to. I think let's see how it manifests itself. Who knows what it what it'll look
2: like. But the conversation around that has, you know, 10x in the last three or four months in terms of how often you're hearing it and hopefully getting into the right ears for people that can make it happen.
0: I know. I, I'm wondering if we're just saying it because we want it to happen, but I'm actually very positive. There's been a really good productive discussion at the federal level. Real pack has been driving it, and I think there's a desire to make it easier because there's acknowledgement. That we're stuck in a lot of cases.
2: Do you worry about, you know, the opposite side, you know, uh, vacancy control, anything like that?
0: No, it was interesting. The, The morning panel talked about it different based on provinces. And they, you know, they joked how the prairies were the most conservative or red states, as they would call it, to in the sense that there's no rental control. But I haven't heard anything. That said, I think when election time comes up, that's when it'll be whether the NDP talks about vacancy decontrol we're pretty reliant on, especially being a new build uh, strategy, that the rental control stays the way it is.
1: Let's stay on the fundamentals. It's an interesting discussion just for the listeners. And then we'll kind of talk about price discovery and, and some other things some, a little bit later. The fundamentals of apartment buildings is, is really interesting. I just ran into a, an old client of ours who's say he owns a 1,000 units, so small in comparison, all sort of 60s, 70s built. He's kind of acquired them all over time. He's really not in growth mode, doesn't develop, and he's just smiling. Like, everything's great for him, right? It's wonderful world out there. Like, interest rates, yeah, it's a minor nuisance, but that's it. Like, the fundamentals are fantastic, yet, there's so much noise about what's transpiring in the Canadian context of affordability and housing risk. And there's so much money out there, too, sitting at the same time, not doing anything, the dry powder conversation. So I'm, I'm curious what your perception is where you sit about, are you waiting for more opportunities? Are you just saying, no, we are got to plow through anyway? How do those conversations take place in that boardroom?
0: Well, the social liberal in me is is concerned about what's going to happen when we think forward that all of us are putting our pens down or we're not investing right now. And you roll that out three to five years, I think we have an affordability.
1: Well, we're in a crisis already. And then we're all sitting here talking about how well we can't build anymore.
0: Well, that's it. And so, so I think, you know, if I think about this taking away my hat as a developer and investor, that concerns me very much so. I think we are underestimating the crisis that's in front of us in the next five years. At the same time, you're going to have, you guys would know the stats, more than 50% of mortgages are going to come up for renewal, coming off 1%, 2%, 3%. So I think we have a tsunami coming in front of us in the next five years. But Park, my social liberal, and I put on my investment hat, we haven't done any acquisitions this year. Last year, when we saw rates increasing, so we have rates increasing, we have construction costs increasing, labor costs increasing.
1: Labor productivity going down.
0: Exactly. So all these things and uncertainty really where people want to live and work. We said it's not so much we don't want to invest anymore, but let's look at the giant portfolio that we've accumulated. I mean, you've you've heard the numbers. It's significant. And make sure we've shored up our balance sheet across the board. And the last year. We have just been working on, you know, making sure we deleverage where we should deleverage. Making whoa, sure the, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know. I know <laughs> don't worry. We'll come back once. That's
1: a fringe theory. They'll come theory. back to the unsecured <laughs> market <laughs> yeah. though. Adam, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's been land actually. Okay. Yeah. So oh, yeah. our
0: most of our land we've delevered as well. So because just the cost of holding it. But all that to say is we've just focused on balance sheet protection. You know, making sure we have execution plans on all our projects, make sure that we time our projects properly, make sure we have the right partners at the table. And we are just waiting until we can figure out how we can buy in this market, because the disconnect between buyers and sellers right now is material.
2: Your apartment position is increasing dramatically, which, of course, is going to impact your your asset mix. But are you actively looking to change your mix for the other three asset classes?
0: So I would say I'm going to take that from two levels. One is what we're looking to do is increase our allocation to core. Um, because when I first started and before that, we were dominantly development. So we will continue to do as much development as we did before. But we're offsetting it by accumulating this, these core portfolios. We will continue to grow apartments. Retirement is the other asset class. And we have seasons. So that we're sort of holding firm right now as, as the market comes back, we'll add here and there. Increasing industrial. So we have 5 million square feet of industrial in the pipeline. So using that to offset some of our office exposure.
2: How big is your office exposure? Not very big. <laughs> so you're sleeping okay at night then? Yeah,
0: it's it's we have a, a series of suburban assets and they perform. They're okay. They're cash flowing. They're sort of 80 to 90% occupied. But... I'm uh, not looking to increase my office exposure for everybody listening to this right now.
1: But <laughs> <laughs> you got a flood of calls. Yes, if, uh, if so. <laughs> well, you got a fifteen thousand unit pipeline on apartments. Like that's gotta be keep you pretty busy. Well resource have intensive as well.
0: It is. We partner with a lot of developers. So we we have a, a stable of great developers that we trust and we've worked with for many years. So we're mitigating the risk by spreading the business across and then we have our own in-house development. So that's
2: helped a lot. Do you expect screaming deals to come along in any of the asset classes, if the bid ask gap shifts to something where you could actually get deals done?
0: Well, that's it. Like for us, like we continue to look at transactions and the expectations of the vendors, especially if you look at just cap rates. We can't justify those cap rates today. They're 100 and to 150 basis points below what financing costs are going to be. So I think the reality is most vendors are staying on the sidelines. If they happen to have come to a transaction, great. The question is whether there's going to be distress in the market. And I think it's going to come down to how quickly rates start to, to pull back. And
1: if they If pull they back. pull back, exactly. Let's get to rail deck. So out of, out of the 15,000, there's one, I think one of the more newsworthy is the, the land that you've kind of acquired and you're in the process of submitting for zoning. Maybe just discuss. We'll, we'll give the background on if anybody who's not seen that in the news, what it is. Yeah. What is it? What's the size? Yeah. Just talk about the, the project very cool.
0: We call it the Cuts and Yards of Toronto. So, we actually bought into the project back in 2021. We bought a, a 50% interest into it. It's so it's air rights. It was originally owned by CN. It goes over the the staged area of the tracks just south of Front Street.
1: And so it's basically west of...
0: Blue, like, it's Blue Jay's way to Spadina. Right. right,
1: so kind of between the Rogers Center and the Convention Center where we are today. Currently a mid sized rail yard, essentially.
0: That's right, that's right. And I mean, the best view for it is when you sta- sit on the, or stand on the Point of luz Bridge. And that's where I've stood to tour people because it's hard to tour people in air So you can only kind of look at the space.
1: Helicopter in, I guess. Exactly,
0: yeah. exactly. So, so it, we, we bought out the, the partner this year. It's going to be a transformative project for the city. It's going to connect the waterfront to Front Street. We all know there's that gap. After you come to Front Street, there's the gap, and then you get to City Place. I'm really excited about it. I think in terms of housing, bringing housing to the city. How many
1: units is the... I know you're still in the proposal stage, so it'll change for sure, but what's the ask?
0: Somewhere between four to 6,000, depending on... And how many
1: towers is that?
0: We don't know yet. Okay. (laughs) A bunch. A bunch. There'll be a bunch of towers. A lot of green space, Of though. course. Yeah, so it's really important for us to make it a neighborhood. It's not just adding towers to the city. We're looking to build out the space, add green space, make it a community, make it a true neighborhood. And
1: interact with everything that's going around there. Because you got from Ripley's to the CN Tower, to Rogers Center, to the Convention Center. There's so much activity in the city in that area. So making it kind of part of a fabric that, that exists.
2: That's right. And from an uh, architecture and engineering perspective, it's got to be a more, more challenging
1: site.
0: It's going to be challenging, and but it's also going to be creative. So a lot of groups are showing interest in getting involved. And we're not quite at that stage yet. We're still understanding and trying to partner with the city. And they've been great, actually, to figure out what can we build. And we really want to partner with the mayor because she's expressed such a desire to advance affordability and accessibility to both rental and to condo. And we think that this is going to be a big piece of that.
1: What are the timeframes, do you think, for at least starting that project because of how complicated it is?
0: I mean, they're long timelines. So right now we're working through approvals with the city. 2025, we're hoping that we're going to start construction on the deck. And going from there, sort of 2027, 2028, we'll start working on towers. We're still planning out the phasing on it.
2: So it's like 2025, if we see you know work on site, that's not too bad. But yeah, the uh, and I want to ask you the completion date for the uh, the units because that might be an ambiguous target. <laughs> and it's because
0: we're phasing it too. We can't have however number of towers that are going to come out of the ground come all at the same time. So we'll phase it. And I'm just excited about the project. I think anybody who's been involved in it or sit, stood around it and see the potential of what we're going to do this city is excited.
1: Well, you can't get more center ice, like literally. You can't get any more close to the core of the country right so
2: well and creative like you know way different than just buying a parking lot downtown and turning it into one maybe two towers
1: there's none of those left either right so this is one of the very last available opportunities for like this right so very cool
2: you've got a panel later today the closing panel and I know you're gonna talk about a number of things uh, some of which we talked about here but the good news is this, this won't be released until after you do your panel so we didn't spoil your uh you know your presentation, but I know you're going to talk about keys to success later today. So if you're comfortable sharing, again, it won't be released till afterwards. What are you going to comment on the keys to success? Because obviously your career has been uh, quite successful.
0: Well, that'll be a last question if we've run out of time or run out of questions. So I don't know if I will cover it. So this could be breaking news.
1: Oh, this could be exclusive. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I thought about it because when we chatted as a, as a panel last week, but I think a few things is humility and like I always want to learn. So I think if you're always in learning mode, You're listening, you're observing people around you. I really enjoy that because I never want to rely on what I've done to date as the answer to the future. And I think the time that we're experiencing right now is a great example of that. We haven't been in this environment in even pre-my time in real estate. So listening and observing what other people are doing and then applying your knowledge. I think being really nice to people makes a big difference because they want to work with you and they're more likely to bring you an opportunity or come work with you at the company. And I mean, we can't be nice 100% of the time. We make difficult decisions. It's not always the greatest place or the greatest situation to be in. When we're in a difficult environment like this, but I think if people want to be around you and you want to be around them, you're going to problem solve together and it's the right thing to do.
2: It is an interesting comment about not just just doing what you've always done in real estate, because real estate loves just doing what we've always done. That's why uh, we're we're slow to adopt new technologies. But that is how we're going to get to the other side of the housing crisis. Likely is uh, technology will be a huge part of that and changing what we've done in the past. uh, Hopefully it applies to any regulatory issues with getting those units delivered.
0: Well, that's actually one of the discussions RealPAC had at the the housing roundtable was what kind of work can we do with the government to drive innovation into how we build? that take cost out of the construction.
1: The National Housing Accord. That's right. We'll talk more about that in future episodes, but if you haven't heard already, Google National Housing Accord and, and there's some really interesting topics there. Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate you coming on. Thanks to First National for powering the podcast. Thank you to Kingset for sponsoring the video series recording here live at the Canadian Apartment Conference. Thanks again.
2: Thank you. Welcome to the commercial real estate podcast after show where Aaron and I dissect the uh, conversation that subscribe rate and review for heaven's sakes. We haven't said that about 180 episodes. We were saying before we hit record that we should do that. And we just remembered.
1: It's one of those things that we're clearly not podcasters, right? We're clearly real estate guys by day. And that's just, we just walked backwards into this. And I don't think we've said it once in 180 episodes. So if you're listening, please go on subscribe, rate or review. Or share with a friend, you know, can be discount on any place you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Apple. All right.
2: Now that we're done uh, marketing our wares, Jamie McKenna. Yeah. I mean, uh, third time coming on every time. Very interesting. And it it's also nice to having somebody on three times where every single time she's been at a very different point in her career. Obviously the first time being with a different company, always something fresh to say. The size of that pipeline, 15,000 units. Is that a lot? I said, I mean, it feels like a lot. I lose track. I can't keep on the numbers just get so big. But she did mention that you kinda, of, you know, wonder where you are relative to your competitors. It'll be up there for sure. I think Rio cane oh, is ten thousand. So fifteen thousand would be more than that. Fifteen thousand would be, yes. Yeah. But well that's pipeline though. I know that real cane's pipeline is more than the ten they've got, right? So there's lots and lots and lots of people with lots of money building lots of things. We'll let the developers figure out the uh, the podium order of pipeline. But,
1: you know, the problem with all that is unless something changes drastically, it just means more delays, more construction cost increases. In what sense? Well, just more applications going to the city. All these people with these giant pipelines stuff coming through.
2: And they all need the same resources in order to get it done.
1: Yeah, and no one seems to be doing anything to increase those resources. National Housing Accord. Yeah, I mentioned that at the end, hopefully we can grab Michael Brooks and bring him on, who's the uh, president and CEO of Pack and one of the authors. But National Housing Accord, go and search it. It's a 10-point recommendation sheet accord that's been circulating around all the right places. We saw Michael Brooks present at a, an event that you were speaking at uh, just earlier this week. And he said he told his board, the board of Real Pack, that this was a grand slam and he asserted that Justin Trudeau, the current prime minister, has read it cover to cover and that it's getting a lot of traction in all the right places and getting positive reactions from tenant board activists and from NIMBY activists and from people that are on the other side, as well as of course the support from the private sector, which is really where Real Pack exists. If you don't know Real Pack, Real Pack is kind of like a lobbyist activists on behalf of the commercial real estate community. Did they write that National Housing Court? Yeah, so the National Housing Court was, was basically this panel that social housing groups plus the private enterprise groups all getting together in a room and figuring out what would we recommend for housing in Canada, we were just being a very sort of pragmatic from both sides, you know, that all, all of us can agree on. So it's this sort of everybody and everyone that's impacted in housing coming together and making these recommendations. And, and it's really interesting, but I won't go through what the 10 are, we'll, we'll wait for our true podcast with Michael, but everything from more coordination between levels of government to financing reforms to, you know, we talked about the HST rebate or HST self-assessment, either waiver or elimination. And all sorts of other things. Uh, One of the big ones that Jamie referenced was there is no social housing. Social housing being true housing kind of owned, managed, operated by government for those that really, truly need it. There's 600,000 units in Canada. The OECD average is for Canada, for a population of 40 million, should be 1.4 million of those suites. So 7% of the housing population. For context, UK is 16% of their per capita really coming to show is that all levels of government i think i've had unfortunately a, a, a woeful history of helping housing in canada at all levels and so and outside of short burst programs incentives i mean like yeah no, we hear it all the time like you know okay well but there's there's inclusionary zoning well inclusionary zoning doesn't really work unless there's sort of tax rebates like you can't just tell developers you got to take it on the chin just build more affordable units because then the developers go well i'm just not going to build then like, there's this misconnomer that developers can continue to just take short, tighter and tighter and tighter margins. And I, I think what appear to be occurring is that there's now this realization that, yeah, that's true. You can't build something that takes this serious risk and time and energy and earn a 3% return when you can buy a GIC for 6%. You're clearly just going to buy the GIC and not build that building. Further constricts supply and drives housing Yeah, you need up. a return that reflects the risk of that investment. And building a building over a three, four, five-year period is a serious risky use of your funds. So it's got to be measure it. So I, hopefully, anyway, it feels like there's some alignment. Who knows what ends up happening? Well, even if it sounds like even a couple of points of the 10-point recommendation got
2: taken, it could be a significant change for our it's, industry. The dialogue, the narrative is much
1: better than it was six months ago, let's say.
2: And obviously, the right eyeballs on it if uh, Justin Trudeau's taking a look. Yes,
1: regardless of what color you support, the individual who is ultimately the decision maker is reading these things, so that helps. And that is what you need to tackle. A Problem like this is a housing plan
2: that uh, can survive different governments changing hands, which
1: is what I think this is really supposed to do. This is a national housing strategy for all Canadians, regardless of whatever color tie you wear. We should do a full episode on this. You're entirely right. Yeah, on. we will. Yeah, no, we will. Just it's it's kind of it's getting a lot of attention here at the Canadian Department in- Investment Conference, and so we're talking about it. Yeah. All right. Well, I guess this is more of a teaser then for a future uh, episode. <laughs> yeah. Jamie McKenna, now that we're back to that, that rail deck or... Hudson Yards, Canada, whatever they're calling it. A very cool project. Again, if you're not from Toronto, just really quickly, it's effectively building, they own the land rights now, over top of the rail lines. I think there's 10 rail lines there. All feeding into Union Station, which is center ice. All feeding into Union Station, just west of Union Station, literally between the CN Tower and Rogers Center to the south and the Convention Center to the north, all the way over to Spadina. So there's a huge piece of land, air rights, and you cannot get more downtown core. Very fun project. Very super complicated project. Very important. And even from the
2: original investment standpoint you know a risky maneuver for sure to try and secure air rights for a development type that has not been tried in downtown toronto to date and now it's gonna turn into a massive project
1: but they've done it in london they've done it in new york i'm sure they've done it in other places i'm sure that i'm sure there's other examples so the engineering is not this sort of marvelous feat you know I, i'm sure there are going to be complications specific to this one but it's just a bunch of trains going underneath it's not i make it sound really simple but it <laughs> some engineer just snapped his pencil in anger listening to you well I, uh... <laughs> Well, I, I, Hudson Yards is like the end of the line, right? Like they all kind of come in and then stop and have to get maneuvered and pulled back out. So there's even more complexity and there's an offloading and onloading underneath Hudson Yards. So that one, I, I believe is more complex. I'm at.
2: Now some union station operator to snapped his pencil listening to you in It's yeah, That's an <laughs> a lot of people.
1: Yeah. Everybody else's job is easy. That's what we're saying, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Podcasting is hard. It is hard sometimes. Yeah. Thanks for everybody for listening. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.